Will you pray with me? God of creation, may the thoughts in our minds, the feelings in our hearts, and the words that we speak today about your holy scripture be both acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. In Christ we pray, amen. We are in the penultimate sermon of our eight-week series called Family Ties, and I sincerely hope that you've been enjoying this series as much as I have. The stories of the Bible's first families are so complex, so rich, that you can contemplate them for a lifetime without exhausting all of the insights that they provide. But I think that if I had to choose just one central message that runs through all of these stories, it would be that all of these stories are about the misguided ways that people look for love. The ways that people hurt one another because deep down they're trying to be blessed. We saw this with Sarah and Abraham. We saw it with Isaac and Rebecca. And for the last two weeks, we've been looking at Jacob, who might go further than anyone in these stories in terms of the links that he will go on his misguided search for love. So for example, Jacob really wants to be blessed by his father. And so he concocts an elaborate con dressing up like his older brother, lying to his father, manipulating this old man because he believes that he can steal the love that he needs. And of course, then he gets a difficult reality check because immediately after tricking his father, he has to run for his life. His brother is out to get him. He finds himself out in the open where he has to spend the night on the hard ground with a rock for a pillow. In that rock bottom condition, Jacob has a vision of God who says to Jacob, I am enough. You can trust me. I am going to bless you. But Jacob doesn't trust. He tries to manipulate God in the same way he has manipulated people all his life. You see, Jacob is stubborn. And with stubborn people, the only school that can teach them is the school of hard knocks. It's an unfortunate truth that for some people, the only way to learn is to hit rock bottom. And so Jacob, who has already lost quite a lot, he's going to have to be brought even lower. And that's the story that we're going to look at today. I want to start by explaining some of the background. Jacob arrives at his uncle's Laban's home because he wants to start a new life. He's fled his other home in fear because his brother wants to kill him. His mother, Rebecca, has told him that he'll be safe at his uncle Laban's house. And I would ask you to try for a moment to put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Here is this young man. He's out on his own for the first time. He is fleeing a chaotic situation that he created. He is dirty, he's exhausted, he's hungry. He's also emotionally very fragile. I mean, he, he's just run away from his family under traumatic conditions. It's true that he's had a mystical vision of God, but, but at this point, even that is destabilizing because it's another new thing that he doesn't understand. And what all of this means is that Jacob is desperate for something to calm him down. He is in a very fragile position. He is desperate for some safety, 
some structure, a new environment, a new opportunity to give him some security. And that means Jacob is vulnerable to grabbing hold of the first thing that comes to him and using that as a way to escape all of his pain and confusion. What happens is that he arrives at his uncle's house and he falls in love. That thing that he reaches for to calm him down is romance. Jacob falls prey to a myth which many people in our culture believe today, that romantic love can save a person. That romantic love can take the place of God in human life. I want to start by reading the description of the moment that Jacob falls in love. This is from Genesis 29, verses 9 to 11. Remember, Jacob has arrived at his uncle Laban's home. He's standing at a well. He's meeting his male cousins for the first time. And all of a sudden, this beautiful woman named Rachel comes into the scene. There's an image of that meeting on the cover of our bulletin today. Here's the passage. While Jacob was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Let me make this clear. Jacob sees a woman for the first time, the first time, and he grabs her and kisses her and starts weeping. Does this sound like an emotionally stable individual? (laughs) Some of you might remember the romance between Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. When they had first fallen in love, Tom Cruise was so excited that he jumped on Oprah's couch. Some people remember that moment. Well, their marriage lasted five years, which is evidence that the intensity of emotions at the beginning of a relationship is not a good indicator for the health of that relationship. Jacob was excited like this when he saw Rachel, but you know, he wasn't really seeing her for who she was. He was objectifying her. He thought, here's the answer to my problems. Look at this beautiful woman, if I can have her. I won't be so nervous. I won't be so confused. I won't have to deal with the pain I've caused my family. I can take this drug and it will heal me. It's notable that in the text, he barely talks to Rachel. He says he loves her, but he barely speaks to her. Instead, he goes to his uncle to try to work out a marriage with Rachel. Now, to some extent, this is simply the way things were done in the ancient world, but it reinforces the fact that Jacob is still viewing life transactionally instead of through the reality of grace. He's still the manipulator. His first thought is still, what can you do for me? He still doesn't understand this radical idea that God's covenant is based in grace, but that's about to change because this trickster, this liar, this manipulator is about to get a taste of his own medicine. We turn now to the main part of our reading, which is uh, Genesis 29, verses 15 through 30. We're going to pick up the story at the moment that Jacob has asked his uncle for Rachel's hand in marriage. This is his uncle's reaction. Laban said to Jacob, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work 
for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to, Rachel, to Jacob and he went in to her. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, this is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. So Jacob went in to Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you don't think the Bible has anything to say to our modern condition, let me ask you a question. Has any, and you don't, you don't have to raise your hand, I'm not gonna put you on the spot, but has anyone in this room ever believed that falling in love would save them? If you say no, I frankly would be surprised. Because the idea that romantic love can save us is deeply embedded into our culture. It's so embedded that I think a lot of people simply take it for granted. Almost every movie has this myth at its core. Almost every popular song is written in praise of this myth. What most of us don't realize is that in our secular culture, what romantic love does is it takes the place that God once held for people. I want to quote from a remarkable book from the 1970s by a psychologist called Ernest Becker. The book is called The Denial of Death. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974. And let me first point out that Ernest Becker was not a religious person, but he understood something powerful, that in our secular culture, something has been lost. Because when you push God out, something has to take the place that God used to have in people's lives. People still need transcendent meaning, and so if you push God out, something has to take that place. Here's what Becker writes. We still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and in gratitude, but if we no longer have God, how are we to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love, love object. And I think there's no more powerful evidence of this than the lyrics of popular music. If, if you look at the lyrics of pop songs, you will see instantly that Becker was right. 
Because the way we talk about romantic love in our popular music is the way the Bible talks about God. And I mean some of the greatest songs, some songs that I love, they nonetheless contain terrible ideas. Take the song Natural Woman by Carole King. I mean, just an exquisite song, especially when it's sung by Aretha Franklin. Let's examine the lyrics to that song. When my soul was in the lost and found, you came along to claim it. I didn't know just what was wrong with me till your kiss helped me name it. Now I'm no longer doubtful of what I'm living for, and if I can make you happy, I don't need to do more. I mean, that is romantic love elevated to the place of religion, that if we can just be in love with someone, we will find our purpose in life. Our souls will finally have the answers they need. Here's another example. This is uh, the Bee Gees song, How Deep Is Your Love? I'm not making a commentary on the quality of these songs. I'm just sharing with you that, that these are popular songs in our culture. So this is the Bee Gees. I believe in you. You know the door to my very soul. You're the light in my deepest, darkest hour. You're my savior when I fall. That's theological language. This is the language of Scripture. I mean, earlier, Mary Jo sang, uh, read from Psalm 42, I thirst for you, O God, like a deer thirsts for water. I mean, it's beautiful when you're talking about God. It's codependent when you're talking about another person. <laughs> Psalm 18, I love you, Lord. You are my strength. I sing the praises of your name. Powerful when we're talking about the creator of all that exists, very dangerous when talking about another human being. Jacob, who still has yet to really understand God's grace, he sees Rachel and he thinks, this is it. This is why I live. This excitement that I feel, this is why I'm alive. I'll do anything to maintain this feeling of being in love. And indeed, what he promises to do is rather extraordinary. Her father Laban asked Jacob, what will you give me in exchange for my daughter's hand? Jacob says, I'll work for you for seven years. I mean, that is not a sum that any rational person would offer. Commentators say that based on the traditions of the time, what Jacob is offering is many times more than what was customary in a marriage. The point is that Jacob is desperate because this is not love, it's lust. And we see this even more clearly when the seven years are finally over. Jacob goes to Laban and he says, give me my wife that I may go into her because my time is completed. The Hebrew here is scandalous. It is a graphic, overt description of physical intimacy. Jacob is saying, I did my part, now give me my drug. You see, Jacob is an addict utterly selfish, which I think makes sense given his background of lying and manipulation. But this trickster is about to get tricked. The night of his wedding to Rachel, his uncle Laban deceives him. He puts a veil on his other daughter. He slips her into Jacob's tent in the dark of night. Jacob makes love to her, which in the tradition of the time meant they were married. He wakes up thinking that he's next to Rachel, 
looks to his side and he sees the other sister, Leah. He is now married, not to the woman he wants, but to her older sister, not to the one he lusted after, but to the one that scripture says is unattractive. And to understand the brilliance of this story, you have to note the parallels between the, Jake, the ways that Jacob just got tricked and the ways that he tricked other people. What did, what did Jacob do? He tricked his father into giving him, not his brother, the blessing. What did Leah do? She tricked uh, Jacob into marrying her instead of her sister. Jacob conspired with his mother. Leah conspired with her father. Jacob pretended to be someone else by wearing a disguise. Leah pretends to be someone else by wearing a veil. Jacob took advantage of his father's blindness. Leah took advantage of the darkness of the tent at night. So on one level, what we're seeing is a little bit of karma. It's saying the way that you hurt people is the way you will be hurt. And there's some truth to that, that if you go out into the world and lie to people, what will probably happen is that people will lie to you. If you go out into the world and steal from people, what will probably happen is that people will take things from you. And as long as you feel like a victim, it will keep happening. The only way for your life to change is, that when, is when you can admit that the stealing and the lying started with you. And that is the unintentional gift that Laban gives to Jacob when he deceives him. You know, Jacob, of course, is furious when he wakes up and sees that he's been tricked. He goes to his uncle and he says, how could you do this? I worked for you for seven years, seven years of my life I gave to you. How can you have deceived me? And Laban answers rather nonchalantly. He says, you know, in our culture, it's just not customary for the younger daughter to be married before the older daughter. This is why I deceived you. It seems like such a casual comment, but it's actually quite remarkable because if you remember, this was precisely Jacob's crime. He was the younger brother trying to steal the blessing that was supposed to go to the older brother. And so when he hears this, it's almost like Laban is shining a mirror in his face. He begins to put the pieces together that this is his own sin coming back to bite him. And that's why when Laban makes another impossible request of Jacob, he agrees. Laban says, if you give me another seven years of your life, I'll give you the woman you want. That's an insane request. But what's so remarkable is Jacob agrees. He doesn't say that's not fair. He says, okay, I'll give you another seven years, which seems to be some indication that Jacob understands, maybe for the first time, that he can't play the victim card anymore. And I think this points to the reality that sometimes our shattered dreams are the doorway to healing. Because if Jacob had not been deceived, he would not have made the connection to his own mistakes. He would not have realized oh my God, I am suffering in the exact way that I made other people suffer. I am being tricked in the exact way that I tricked other people. That understanding does a number of things. First, it gives Jacob some empathy because now he knows what it feels like to be on the receiving end of deception. It hurts. It's painful to be betrayed, which means he understands what his brother Esau felt like when he betrayed him. 
And it's no accident that next week we will watch Jacob seek out his brother Esau in order to make amends. He will fall at his brother's feet and beg forgiveness. That would not have been possible if Jacob had himself not been betrayed. But this new understanding does something else too. It begins to destroy his idols. Remember, Jacob thought that romance was going to cure him. He made lust his God. But he's beginning to see that idols just can't heal him. No matter how alluring they are, no matter how attractive they are, they cannot give him what God alone can give him. And so to be healed, he's gonna have to go directly to the source. He's gonna have to see that although he's spent his life up to now wrestling with people, he's gonna have to start wrestling with God. Although he's been manipulating people to give them their blessings, the blessing he really needs is from God. I'll leave you with two thoughts. Number one, your own suffering might contain within it seeds of growth. If you can begin to see that at least some part of your own struggles are self-inflicted, Ironically, that can be liberating because you can begin to take responsibility for your life in a new way. You can stop experiencing yourself as a victim to whom things keep happening and start seeing yourself as an agent who actually can make some things happen. The second thought I'll leave you with is this, that, that the, the allure of idols in your life is a mirage. That thing that you have to have to be happy is probably not what you really need. It's probably covering up a deeper need along with some deeper fear of change. And if you can understand those two things, you can stop wrestling so much with people and you can start wrestling with God. It's okay to wrestle with God. As we will see next week, all roads point to him. Jacob has been wrestling people all his life, but next week we will get to the culmination of this story, which is a literal wrestling, wrestling match with God. It is an extraordinary story, and I look forward to exploring it with you. Let's end in prayer. God, we ask you today to cleanse the idols of our hearts Give us the strength to take responsibility for our mistakes so that we can be freed to make amends and move forward with a new sense of energy and purpose. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.